Dave Fanning on 2FM. And there you go. That's the track, of course, from 1987. You know it well. Hysteria is the album. My favourite Def Leppard song. And it's called Animal. But now I want to bring you up to date. The best way to bring you up to date to 2022 is to talk to Joe Elliott himself. Joe, how are you? Are you all right? Grant. Good to hear from you again. They haven't spoke to you for ages. I know. Yeah, it's good to speak to you too. Diamond Star Halos. Let's just take a look at this. Diamond Star Halo. Obviously the title track. I mean, the title taken from T-Rex, etc. But this is an album from 2022 that might herald a new way of Def Leppard recording albums in the future because you were thrust into this. You never thought this could be absolutely possible. And it worked out brilliantly. Yeah, it did actually. And you'll find over the next 18 months, there's going to be a lot of records coming out like this. Yeah. Um, when you think about this, Ozzy just put a new album out and it's just absolutely just teeming with guests. Jay Clapton, Beck, yeah. um, you know, there's all sorts of people on it. And Taylor Hawkins, there's 10 different drummers. He wasn't all done in one room at the same time. It was done like we did ours, you know. Um, but yeah, it literally the day that they locked down the whole world was the day we were supposed to start doing a recording session at my place in, in Ireland and nobody could come. So we just got on the phone to each other and just literally in 40, 45 minutes made a game plan to let's do what we've done in dribs and drabs for the last 20 years, which is remotely record. Yeah, but Joe, hold on. You did it on the phone or you did it on the internet. It wasn't like the way, you know, it wasn't Zoom, was it? And why not? No, no. We never even saw each other because it's too much trouble getting the Zoom thing going. It was just easier to send somebody an email in MP3 going, I've got this song, what do you think? And then they'd phone you up and say, okay, we can do that. And then you just get on with it, you know. I mean, we were... Hold on, Joe, when you say somebody, let's just take a look at you and Phil the way you did this. He's got a different eight-hour clock than you did because you were mm. in Dublin, etc. So you'd be able to do things. He's, and then you'd work on them in the eight hours he was asleep and vice versa. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. I would wake up to something in my inbox and he'd go, check this out. And I'd listen to him and go, okay, this is cool. Let's jangle that every bit and turn it into a verse. And they'll go, okay. So then the next day he comes back in with a jangly bit. I sing over that because I've been thinking of ideas while he was asleep. And I would do them while he's asleep, send it over to him as a demo. And he would then go, okay, yeah, this is great. And like the song Open Your Eyes, for example, that's the greatest example of back and forth like tennis. Um, and we did it in two days. And it was quicker than we've ever done anything in the studio when we're actually in the same room. So, so when you are actually in the same room, things get in the way. You have to listen to somebody else's idea and you sit there, okay, oh, great, yeah, fantastic. Or else, um, I think there was one song where somebody, I don't know who it was exactly, his hand started to bleed on the guitar. And if that was the, Right, okay, Sav, yeah. And you'd be there waiting for 12 hours, 14 hours, fingers ready yet. But you didn't even know about this, or frankly didn't care, or weren't expected to care. You just got on with the <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, we cared after the fact. <laughs> we felt sorry for him, you know. But it was the fact that when he got it did, when he finished it and sent it over, and then, we, you know, he'd get an email from us going, Slav sounds amazing. And he'd go, yeah, well, let me tell you all about it. And he'd say, my fingers were bleeding. I had to stop doing it for a couple of days and then come back to it again. Because 12-string guitars have got very sharp strings on them. And you press them down for long enough, you know, if you play... You have, you see, you've got to realise as well, when you're in the studio, you're not in live mode, so your fingers aren't playing every day. So they kind of just get soft and squishy, <laughs> and then you start playing, yeah. and then the calluses build, and 
then, then they'll bleed. Um, but they, they, I mean, there was lots of humorous incidents like that that would happen, and we'd only find out after the fact. But honestly, when you've got five alpha males in one room, it can get um, tricky getting your points across. And there's always that fear of, oh, I've got this song which is not quite finished, and then somebody wants to leap in and finish it off, which is great if you've got the right part. But it's, then it's just a negotiation of, of what you're going to do. Whereas leaving everybody to their own devices, this is the first time we've written an album the way that I suspect Queen wrote records. Where Fred comes in with a song and Brian does and then Roger and John. And they just go, look, this is my song. Don't mess with it. And, you know, we've been doing this long enough now where we know how to write songs. So it was just a case of like trust. And that was the first thing that was established in that 40 minute phone call was that when I said to Phil, what have you got? He says, well, I've got four. And I said, well, I've got three. We didn't go, well, let's hear them in case they're not good. We just said, okay, cool, that's seven. And then Sav came in with two. And on day one, we have nine songs. So it's like, well, we're only one song off a standard album. But we just kept going when, when lockdown kept getting extended and the tour got nudged and then the tour got cancelled or postponed. We then realised with it being a summer tour, it's going to be 12 months before it gets rescheduled. Yeah. So we had the whole year to just keep going. And we just ended up writing 15 songs. Yeah, so it's, it's, over, it's over 60 minutes long. So it's basically a double album. Diamond Star Halo is what it's called. It's the current and 12th one. And I get the impression that you guys, no matter how you have to do it, either together or, or continents apart, you're as enthusiastic about writing and recording as ever. So let's just, before I go back to it and play a song from it, um, I just want to take a look at where we stand here because there's a funny thing here about Def Leppard that I always love this. I remember like when, uh, was it, it, was, it was, um, was it Adrenalized, I think, came out around 92. And like yeah. a bit of a disappointment. It only sold 7 million copies. <laughs> It was like, oh, God, really? And why was it a disappointment? Because the one or two before that sold 10 million and the one in the middle sold 20 million copies. So, like, when you have to live up to that, I mean, the madness of those years, Joe, did you have as good a time as I hope you did? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, hey, come on, you were there for most of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, were my, you were my time. landlord. <laughs> <laughs> we had a fantastic time. But, you know, you know, the truth is, and I'm not saying this now with hindsight to sound smart, but when you've had an album do what well, was at the time 12 going on for 13 million copies, you know, you just know that that's about as good as it gets from a commercial point of view. You know, you can pretend all you like and your PR men can circle the wagons, but Michael Jackson with Thriller, ACDC with Back in Black, you too with, with Joshua Tree. There comes a point where you just think, well, how far can it go beyond this, you know? Um, and then we look at history of bands that we loved, like Sgt. Pepper came out and, you know, yeah, loads of people think that the White Album's a better album or even, you know, Abbey Road or Let It Be. But the fact of the matter is it was a bit of a taper off after that. Pink Floyd got Dark Side of the Moon was followed by a great album called Wish You Were Here, but it didn't sell anywhere near the same amount of copies. It's just part of what you do. There's always going to be a peak. Ours, luckily, was album four. It wasn't the first album, like, say, a Boston or whatever, where everything else is downhill from that. But we had to build momentum. And we did. that's why, I mean, the seven million 
in 92. It was a recession year. <laughs> it was actually, <laughs> comparison, not too bad. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, to sell those kind of records now would be amazing because nobody yeah, buys records. That's anymore. what I mean. It still kept, uh, what do you call him, with um, his, his, what's it? What's Bruce, it? yeah. The Human Touch album. They kept that off the number one in the States, yeah. So, like, I mean, like, just as a matter of interest, those two albums, Hysteria and Adrenalize, those two, are, are, I mean, sorry, Pyromania and Hysteria. When you made Hysteria, you, I get the impression you've said something along the lines before that like it wasn't necessarily the most fulfilling album you made, even though it was rewarding. I mean, one of the things you did was you went with Jim Steinman, you went to Holland and threw the whole lot out, or did you? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, we uh, we started actually Booters Town. That's that was the the embryonic beginnings of Hysteria. We rented a house and it was literally like the young ones. We were all in the one house. Until after six weeks, I went, I can't deal with this. I love the place, but I've got to get out of this house, which is why I ended up being your landlord, uh, because I moved into a little apartment up Mount Merion Avenue, and uh, the rest yeah. is history. Uh, and I never left, you know, um, mm. other than to go working and stuff. But, yeah, we, we did all the writing until August of 84, and then we went to Holland and worked with Steinman, but it was just oil and water. It was just didn't work. You know, I've been done an album with Mont Lang, two albums with Mont Lang, his approach was more the way we saw things. It was futuristic and forward thinking where Jim was definitely retro. And it was, yeah. we were talked into this, um, this relationship with Jim's time. And then we were kind of kicking and screaming as we went into it. We always had this feeling it wasn't going to work. And it, it actually was worse than we thought. Um, so yeah, we did scrap it all and we started again. And the truth is that we were motoring along relatively well up until Rick's accident. Um, but it was motoring along with Pyromania 2. Uh, so it wasn't exactly like groundbreaking. And it yeah. was only when Mutland came back in, because the reason he wasn't doing it is because he hadn't had a break in 10 years and needed, needed some time away. But he came back, and after Rick's accident, I think even that encouraged him from a, an emotional point of view to jump back in and, and give us the guidance that we were missing. Um, and then it all just kicked off. It, 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 we started taking more notice of current stuff, so it wasn't Def Leppard just making a record that sounds like all the bands we grew up listening to. We were listening to Run DMC and Aerosmith, which was a great hybrid. We were listening to Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which was great crossover of pop and rock. And just stuff that sounded like, well, this is new. And we wanted to incorporate that into what we were doing. And it wouldn't have worked with Jim, but it, it, it was hard bloody work. It was like pulling teeth. If but it was very rewarding at the end, yeah. Yeah, and if Hysteria gets number one in the UK immediately, the fact that it takes a year to get to number one in America, that must have been a very nice feeling when it got there. You realise all this... Oh, yeah. the, probably the best feeling I've ever had in this band, you know, because 49 weeks is only a couple of weeks, you know, three weeks shy of an entire year. And, you know, we can laugh and mock whether Australia is a major market. We took two years to get to number one in Australia, which yeah. was great. I mean, went to number one as we were starting the next record. Um, it was just nuts, you know. But it was, it was a great feeling because back in those days, the way that the charts were formatted, you 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 didn't just go in and your first week was your best week, which is all it's been for the last 20 years or so. Um, there was momentum that could be built through airplay and, and sales and stuff like that. You could work it, you know, it was a different world. Um, but it was incredible that it, it just hung around the top 10 forever. And then yeah. one place at a time worked its way up there all the way to the summer of 88 and finally got there and spent six weeks number one over about a 10-week 10, 10 period. We kept swapping places with Van Halen and Guns N' Roses. Talk about the year of rock. It was amazing. 
All right, well, listen, you mentioned a minute ago about Rick and his terrible accident in 84 and Steve drinking too much, maybe, and uh, he died in 91. And then Vivian had cancer in back in 2013. Point is, when you look at those three things, you'd say, wow, what a life you guys have had to go through, etc." But besides those, with all due respect, I get the impression that of all the bigger bands like that, that you were never part of the cliche and there's not really anything else that you can give out. I mean, there's enough in those three, don't get me wrong. But there mm-hmm. are, for instance, the band you're going to play with on July 4 at Marley Park, uh, Motley Crue, like you guys are altar boys. Yeah, oh God, yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. If we, whatever naughty shenanigans we got up to was always behind closed doors, you know, with the, with the sound turned down. Um, yeah, Motley, Motley's a different beast, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's 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 hard to to kind of categorize anything about Motley Crue because it's so vast. You know, I mean, they're funny, they're serious, they're loud, they're they're really decent people. But when they get on stage, they're they're just a different beast. You know, whereas with us, we kind of take a part of us onto the stage and project that relative normalness, I suppose, which makes us less exciting than a an Axl Rose or a, a, you know a Tommy Lee, but I think we're very consistent in the way that we do things, you know, um, and it's it's always been that way with us. You know, it's you and me can go for a quiet pint. I don't need to be in the paper the next day if I did. You know, I'm, I've never been that kind of paparazzi type of guy and didn't like it when I was nailed for going into Lilies and stuff like that. It's like <laughs> I'm not going in for a publicity. I'm going in for yeah, a pint. This is, I mean, like when you think of other names, like Alison Krauss is on this album. People like Pink and Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga have thumbs up Def Leppard. That's all pretty cool, isn't it? It is. And, and you know, when you think about the other week, we did the Taylor Hawkins Memorial Show in, uh, in L.A. Yeah. And we had two members of the Foo Fighters playing Rock of Ages with us and playing a Nirvana riff all the way through it, you know, and, and giggling at each other for like, the, the, just the, the, the irony of it all, you know, I mean, grunge came along to try and tr- stamp on our generation. Uh, yeah. Yet the truth is that a lot of those bands actually liked what we did. They just, as I've, I've said many times, Kurt Cobain didn't have a problem with Def Leppard. He had a problem with the 99 copy bands that sounded like us and the music had to change. Um, and Dave Grohl and Pat Smear pretty much, they when they invite us to do this show, they confirmed the fact that it's like, dude, you know, we grew up yeah. listening to your yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah. And it was just great fun watching the two of them sniggering, going, we're playing Nirvana over Rock of Ages. This yeah. is really cool. Um, and they were only doing it for a few mates to see if they figure it out, you know. Right. And, and yeah. having Miley Cyrus get up with us as well. I mean, there's been a lot of, we, we get a lot of thumbs up from the country people. It's Tim McGraw and Taylor Swift and Alison Krauss and Keith Urban that, that come to see us and stuff like that. But there's a lot of people in rock that like us, but they don't admit it. And that's okay, because Queen kind of went through that in their yeah, heyday yeah. as well. But then, hold on, does that mean, Joe, like, that, like in many ways you have fallen between two stools and that you're, maybe pop fans thought, like, thought, possibly thought you were too heavy and heavy rock fans thought maybe you were too pop. And when you fell between those two stools, there was a whole world there that, that belonged nah, to you. That's excellent. What it is, it's the noisy minority. The, the big, we, you know, you can't say that we didn't connect because we've sold, you know... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fact keeper, Dave, but they get thrown at me these days because it's digital. But we, we only went digital in 2018 and we've been streamed six billion times. That's B with a billion with a B, you know. And even I'm like going, really? Wow. 
Yeah, because the noisy minority will go, ah, they're, they're too, they're not, they're not heavy enough to be a rock band. And then the pop guys go, oh, it's too heavy to be pop. But there's this huge amount of people in the middle that don't go online and say things. They just come to the gigs and buy the records. You know, I've always thought, that one of the, I think you might even have told me this, but there's a great fact that I've never forgotten that is during all the heyday of punk and new wave, the biggest selling band in the world was Supertramp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? And it's like, you don't really see raging Supertramp fans on the internet going crazy, but rock fans have a, a bit more of a vocal okay, output. One yeah. or two last bits, Joe, before I play a song from the album, Diamond Star Halo itself. I mean, this one here is a bit like, there's a lot of um, homage to all the great stuff that I own, that I know you know and love very much, which is uh-huh. the glam music. Yeah, it is. It's the first record that I think the last two albums, the one that came out in 2014 and this one, were the, the, the closest we've ever come to never referencing ourselves. We didn't once walk in going, OK, well, that song sounds too much like a song off hysteria, or this one doesn't sound enough like a song. It's like yeah, you yeah, always yeah. have this albatross around your neck of the, the biggest selling record. And we just never referenced it. All we did was reference everything that one made us want to be in a band in the first place. So I didn't even notice it half the time. It was subconscious. But when I first played Phil Mike a couple of songs that I was really fortunate enough to get Mike Garson to play piano on, um, Phil said, it sounds like Elton from like Madman Across the Water meets Pink Floyd. And I just stood there smiling going, wow, OK, I'll take that. Because we, you know, that if I'd have said that in Bootestown in 84, everybody would have gone, what? But when I came in, this blank canvas, this totally different headspace, when you're not in the same room with people, it's like, how are we going to make a record if we're not going to be in the same room? Well, have we got any songs? And that was it. It's like, we didn't say bits of songs like you normally would. Someone's got a riff and we all sit there gluing bits together. People came in with finished bits of work. So we all get influenced by different stuff. Phil came in with one. He says, I've written it on a ukulele. Now, I burst out laughing at first. I'm thinking George Formby. You know, but it t- turns out that his ukulele is more like a mandolin, so it becomes Led Zeppelin three. Right. And yeah. these yeah. were the reference parts. So we've got Zeppelin, we've got Elton, Pink Floyd, loads of glam. There's 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 the combo of Bowie, Slade, Sweet, Bolan in mm. all the songs like Kick and Fire It Up and stuff like that. And then there's the obvious internal leakage of sounding like Def Leppard, which is. And no bad thing, because how many times have me and you ever said privately, God, I wish you two would make another song that sounds like you too, or <laughs> the Rolling Stones. Why don't they write another song that sounds like Satisfaction? Stop <laughs> avoiding yourself. When Bowie came back with Earthling, he essentially did a drum and bass version of The Man Who Sold the World. Right. And it's like, yes, he's back. You know what I mean? So Actually, that's where we mention- went. We didn't plan it. It just went there organically, which was amazing. And you mentioned Mike Garson there, who like gave the amazing piano on uh, the title track of Aladdin Sane by David Bowie. And of course, he's been working with you as well. But just one last thing I want to mention, and he's on your album here, Diamonds Star Halo. One last thing I want to mention is this, and they're all at it. It started with Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen got his half a billion, etc. I mean, selling your catalogue, the whole idea of selling it to somebody so that they're in charge of it and can do something with it. To me, looking at the way everybody's done it, it's total win-win. I don't see where anybody would lose. Uh, there's a younger 
audience will get to know the stuff. They will treat it as well as possible. They might put it in an ad. They might give it to a movie, but they'll do it really nicely and do it really well. And you don't have to worry about somebody looking for a riff or, or somebody wants to steal something for one of your songs or somebody needs something for a, a movie. They'll do it all and they'll do it tastefully and you make loads of money. What's wrong with well, that? Well, there is that, yeah. Um, we did. We have negotiated with um, Primary Wave some of our back catalogue, but not the whole thing because we didn't want to lose 100% control of it, which a lot of bands are happy to do. I yeah. think once you become 80 years old, you actually go, you know what, I'm okay with this. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm only in my early 60s, so I'm not ready to just relinquish all control, and none of us were. But what yeah. we did do is we got smart with it, and we we sat down with these guys and said, look, we're, we're happy to, to negotiate and if you want to call it sell, but, you know, re-sign with these people for a decent advance is what you end up getting. Um, mm. But they still have to run everything by us and we can still tastefully say, no, we don't want to be in a tampon ad. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? But it's like, if yeah. it's, hey, if it's a Rolls Royce car or a Porsche or something cool, like, you know, you know, I've always thought that Pour Some Sugar On Me would be a great song for a Kellogg's Cornflakes ad. <laughs> Obviously. All right, listen, Joe, it's more or less time to go. So listen, thanks so much for talking with us. I'm going to play now from here to eternity the closing track on Diamond Star Halo. And the gig is on Independence Day. It's July 4, Marley Park with uh, Def Leppard and, of course, Monty Crew as well on the bill. Joe, it's been a pleasure, of course, as usual. Thanks a million. Fair play. My pleasure. Dave Fanning on 2FM.